everybody. This is Ellen Weatherford. I'm here with just the zoo of us, and today we've got a brand new friend. This is Gabby Fleury. Say hi, Gabby. Hi. I'm so excited to talk to you. Today we're talking about cheetahs. We're going to go real fast. But first, before we talk about cheetahs, I want to talk a little bit about you. So let us know a little bit. You mentioned that you have worked with cheetahs before. So what got you into your work with cheetahs and other carnivores? So it's kind of a long, winding story. Um, it's really funny because people always ask, you know, how did you know that you wanted to be in conservation? I've wanted to be in conservation since I had like a conscious decision about what I was into because I was so obsessed with wildlife. And I always joke that I just watched way too much like Captain Planet and the Planeteers and it just kind of like warped me. And like, this is why I do what I do. But honestly, I've just, I've always been passionate about it. And with African carnivores specifically, my dad is Brazilian, but he's of Angolan descent. So he always was telling me like folklore stories and tying it into kind of like our background. So I was always really passionate about specifically Southern Africa. And with cheetahs, cheetahs are really interesting. I actually don't know why I specifically got into cheetahs when I was really little, but I was really hardcore about them because everyone would be like, oh, here's a leopard. Like, they'd give me, like, a postcard with a leopard and be like, it's a cheetah. And I'd be like, no. (laughs) Were you the kid who would be, like, standing there at the zoo by the exhibits and be like, actually? (laughs) I was exactly that kid. Yeah, I was definitely that kid. But I would always get really, like, cranky. And I remember my mom, like, got me, like, um, like, a picture of a jaguar. And she's like, here's a cheetah. And I'm just like, it's in a rainforest. (laughs) It's it's in a rainforest. Um, But yeah, and I'm also a pediatric cancer survivor. So I think um, the fact that I couldn't run very fast because I had um, a reconstructed left leg. So it was actually kind of interesting because I was going through PT. And like, it's like my interest in cheetahs became even more and more because I was like, they can do what I can't. Um, which is be super speedy. And just as a personality, I've always just kind of been a gotta go fast on like the hedgehog kind of person. So yeah, that's why they're my faves. And um, so I actually started working um, just on lion and livestock conflict issues in Ebosele, Kenya. But there were overlap with other predators like leopards and cheetahs and things like that and having to understand how all these different carnivores in the ecosystem interact and how that impacts livestock losses. So when carnivores go after farmers' livestock. And I didn't really have my first cheetah-related job until I started working at Cheetah Conservation Fund after my master's degree, which was really cool because I wrote the founder, Lori Marker, when I was seven and got like a t-shirt. And she wrote wrote me back, which is really cool. And when I um, had my interview, I was like wearing the t-shirt because it had been like a dress on me. So I was like actually wearing it and be like, I'm wearing the shirt you gave me when I was like seven years old. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. It's such a full circle. Totally full circle. And it was really cool. So I got to work there. Um, I worked there for about a year and I did work on their human wildlife conflict team. So I led their human wildlife conflict team and did some different studies and working with farmers and things like that so it was super cool and the neat thing about that place as well is that they have a lot of uh, cheetahs that can't be rehabilitated like usually they'll try to rehabilitate cheetahs that they can and release it back into the wild but sometimes they can't so there's a bunch of cheetahs there that kind of in a sanctuary kind of situation so as i was walking to the office you know there'd be like cats on either side of me and that was always kind of neat so What is their personality like when you work with them? Give us an idea of like what it's like to actually work around cheetahs. Cheetahs are really interesting. They all have very unique personalities. I'd say of cheetahs, because of their biology and because they're kind of, of the big cats, they're, I hate to say wimpy, but they're kind of like the wimpy big cats. They're, <laughs> they're not very strong, and a lot of other uh, carnivores will push them around or will be actively a danger to them because basically cheetahs um, biologically they've sacrificed all of their strength for speed to be able to be really fast they can't have a lot of muscle mass they can't be you know very strong so they're a little like skittish 
Oh, they're the nerds of the big cats. <laughs> they are, I think that's why I like them so much because I, I too am a nerd. Um, but they are, yeah, they're very kind of like skittish and cautious, a little less outwardly aggressive, I guess, than some other cats. I know that on conflict calls, like if we had, you know, we heard it was a leopard, we were always a lot more nervous than if it was a cheetah because cheetahs were actually straight up just trying to, I mean, all animals try to avoid people, but in a high stress situation, a cheetah would be less dangerous than the leopard. In that same situation so yeah and maybe like i mean this is anthropomorphizing but maybe like a little fussy they tend to be a little finicky you know like Aww. many cats <laughs> i've seen a lot of videos floating around like on youtube and stuff of cheetahs climbing into like jeeps and stuff of like people that are driving around and cheetahs are just like hey i want to see what you're all about and they like climb on top of the jeep and like look around and stuff was that like something that you had to deal with a lot are they no. curious i mean i'm sure they're curious i never had one climb on top of a car um they've always <laughs> like stayed away from the car because again like in my um experience they're quite skittish but again i was working in namibia and i was working in places where there wasn't high levels of tourists so i think a lot of those videos come from places like the masai mara where the cats get really habituated to people um i would not say that that's like a a natural behavior for any wild animal to do that. So I think it's because they see people so much that they actually become very used to it. And there's actually some stories of, you know, like, I think it was cheetahs, actually, they would leave, like, their babies near the cars and then go hunting, like, using the tourist vehicles as, like, babysitters. Huh. So, like, the animals got really used to it. But that's, like, not not normal sure. <laughs> behavior. A lot of the time, they'll just stay off by themselves to kind of see them in the distance or under a tree somewhere. Oh, man, I would be so excited to see what I've I've seen them in zoos. I've never seen one in the wild. But they're really beautiful. I'd be really excited to see one even from a long distance. That would be really cool. They're amazing. And watching them run is amazing. Oh, I bet I bet I bet. Okay, I'm gonna ask you (laughs) lots of questions about them running in just a couple minutes. But first, for people that maybe aren't super familiar with like cat taxonomy, sure. uh, like where do cheetahs fall in relationship to other cats? Okay, yeah, that's a really good question. So cheetahs are very unusual where they're, they have their own name. They're not part of Panthera. Um, so Panthera would be like Panthera Leo, like lion or tigers. They're not part of like that group. Um, they're considered closely related to actually cougars or to pumas. Um, that's where they're most closely related. So they're a big cat, but they're very different than other big cats. And there's many other ways that they're different as well, where um, other cats have retractable claws, and cheetahs have semi-retractable claws. So the claws actually act like um, like cleats on like a shoe. Oh. Like so, basically, as they're running, it helps give them traction. And they also have very like unique other um, things. Like they can't roar, but they can purr, which is really cool. I love that. Cheetahs purrs are amazing. <laughs> Are there different types of cheetahs? Yeah, so um, there are cheetah populations. So most cheetahs are in Africa. Like the majority of their population is in Africa. Um, but there also are some pockets of populations. There's one in Iran. There's Iranian cheetahs. Whoa, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, they're actually the Asiatic cheetah, which is very rare. Um, and then there's also African cheetah, which is like the primary cheetah. But the populations, the Asiatic cheetah populations are very fragmented. And they're like extremely endangered. Overall, the IUCN has classified. The IUCN is um, the institution that basically says whether an animal's endangered or um, you know under threat, um, and they've classified them as vulnerable. And there's expected to be about like seven thousand hundred cheetahs in the world, which is not great because that's fewer than rhinos. You know how we all are obviously very concerned about rhinos, but 
there's fewer cheetahs than rhinos if you're in lions and rhinos. There's a lot of the big cats are like severely threatened. So I would say that that is kind of like the two major cheetahs is like the African cheetah and the Asiatic cheetah. And then there's also um, like different pattern variations. There's something called a king cheetah, but it's not a different species. It's basically instead of just spots, it has kind of these, these dark stripes down its back almost, but it's just like a variation of the coloring. <laughs> <laughs> so since we're talking about cheetah morphology, let's get into our ratings for the cheetah because we're here to review them. And what better person to review them than somebody who loves them so much and will give a good, <laughs> will give a good in-depth rating. So our first category is effectiveness, which are physical adaptations that let the animal do a good job of what it's doing. So we're talking cheetahs. So they're trying to chase down their prey, catch it, kill it, eat it, things that are built into their body that let them do a really good job of hunting down their prey. What do you give the cheetah out of 10 for effectiveness? I would say a seven. Okay. They do well, but like, as we said, there are trade-offs that could hamper their effectiveness in other ways because they basically have put everything into the speed basket. Um, really great eyesight. So they're diurnal. So they actually will avoid the time when a lot of other carnivores that are more dominant to cheetahs are active, which is really cool. And they also have some really cool adaptations. So their spine is very flexible and their tail acts like a rudder. So they have a very long tail in proportion to their body and that helps them kind of turn when they're running. Their skull actually has a very slight, um, what's called an occipital crest. So basically, it's the little ridge on the skull that goes from the front to the back. And in a lot of other big cats, like lions or leopards, you'll actually see that that crest is really, really, really tall and really thick. And that's to support the jaw muscles of those cats. But because cheetahs have to be super streamlined to be able to run, their little occipital crest is very, very thin which means that they don't have that same jaw strength. So basically, when you think of like a cheetah, think of something that's basically offloaded everything to be as streamlined as possible. And that's kind of why they're, they're kind of the nerds, where it's like they, <laughs> they're very, very tied into how can they have as little on them to be able to go as fast as possible when they're hunting. They're actually what's called a coarser predator, so they burst out and they run a prey down um, in like spurts of activity, rather than like an ambush predator like a leopard that would leap out of a tree or something. Oh, that's really cool. They've made a lot of trade-offs, huh? Yeah, for sure. But because they've made all these trade-offs, they're weaker than other animals in, in some respects, so they have to um, eat their prey very, very quickly. So even though they have a pretty decent hunting success range, about 25 to 40% success range, they get chased off about roughly 10% of the time by other predators from their prey because the other predators will like see a cheetah take down a gazelle and then basically steal it. Oh no, they're getting picked on by the bullies! It's essentially what that is. It's like somebody's like stealing their lunch money. Um, oh no, I feel so bad for them. So they actually, you know, they'll drag the prey to cover, um, not up a tree like a leopard, they'll actually drag it to cover and they'll eat as fast as they can and then leave. And you'll see that if you see a carcass that's been eaten by a cheetah, they tend to, you know, eat out of kind of the chest of the carcass so they can get like high quality like organ meat and stuff like that. And basically they'll leave the rest because they basically want to get out of there before they get chased off. They make it work. Um, but the other thing that also kind of hampers cheetahs is the fact that they're very inbred. Oh no. Yeah, which actually wasn't human caused. It wasn't caused by anything. It actually happened kind of back in the Paleolithic era, but they went through some uh, genetic bottlenecks that basically reduced the population of the cheetahs to like very, very, very small population, which of course bred with each other. And because of that, they actually are susceptible to a lot of like issues with genetics. So you'll see cheetahs with like things like kink tails or other issues like that because just their base level genetics are very low. Um, I think they're actually baseline the, the most genetically inbred cat. 
But what's really interesting is that cats in general are not very tolerant to inbreeding. So like, for example, species such as rhinos, the white rhino population got reduced to 20,000 individuals and they're okay. Like they don't have the same kind of genetic problems. They're more tolerant. But cats in general are like very sensitive to bad effects from being inbred. So that's kind of a, a mark against the cheetah column. It's not their fault, but it's a mark against the cheetah column. So you'll see in a lot of um, organizations that research cheetahs, they often will have a really comprehensive kind of genetic swing because it's so important to understand kind of the genetics of the population and how things are moving. And that's another reason why it's so important to protect large tracts of land, because cheetahs need to be able to move throughout the landscape or the inbreeding problem becomes even worse and affects their health. Um, so it's all tied together. There's a lot going on for these poor cheetahs. Yeah, but they're great. <laughs> I know they are so good. So uh, what I think probably a lot of people want to hear about is about like the mechanics of their running. They run so fast, right? This is the fastest right. like terrestrial animal that's like running on land, right? Yeah, fastest land animal for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is it about them that lets them run so fast? I know you said that they've got the claws that give them traction. Mm -hmm. They've got the tail that helps them steer. Like, what about the cheetah's body lets them reach such crazy speeds? Their spine is like a spring. Really? Yeah, it's a very, very, very flexible spine. Like, cats have very flexible spines in general, but cheetah spines are unusually flexible. And when they run, the spine compresses and then, like, flexes out. So they kind of propel themselves like a spring. But the other cool thing about a cheetah is if you, if you see a cheetah as they run, their heads are not bobbling all over the place. They keep their heads perfectly level as they run. Like a stabilizer? Like a stabilizer. Whoa. Which is really cool. <laughs> um, so they can keep their eyesight, you know, directly focused on their prey. And because of that flexible spine and because of the tail that kind of can help them steer, they can do these really quick turns. So if they're prey... For example, they're chasing an impala and the impala does a quick turn. They can quickly adjust um, to continue chasing it. But the downside of all of that, which is why I give them a seven, is they get very quickly burned out. So these chases are very, very, very quick. They usually will get as close to their prey as possible undercover and then spring out and then run as fast as possible to take them down. But it's over very, very, very quickly um, because they can't sustain that amount of energy. And because they're exhausted, of course, after they kill their prey, that leaves them very susceptible for other predators to take their prey away, which is why they have to adapt having to eat that fast. So there's, there's pros and cons, but watching them run is really incredible because they launch and basically you can see their body like stretching and contracting, but their heads are just like straight on, Whoa. which is super cool. <laughs> That makes me think of like those videos where you see someone holding a chicken and they're like moving the chicken around in a circle oh, like the and hawk. the head stays still. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little bit like that. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't expected it from a cat though. I bet that's really cool to see. Because you had mentioned that they have good eyesight. And I wanted to ask you about something that I've heard that I don't know if it's true. Sure. Um, about the little tear marks. Yeah. So that's another thing that, um, like I said, I used to be really cross at people who were like, oh, it's it's a cheetah. And it's, it's clearly a leopard. And one of the reasons you can tell a difference between a cheetah and a leopard is, of course, that the cheetahs have tear marks. And there's a lot of um, theories about why they exist. And one of them is kind of when you think of like a like an American football player that has kind of the black stuff around his eyes to keep up the glare of the sun. That's why they think that those tear marks exist, basically, is to help reduce glare. So when the cheetah's running, it doesn't get the sun in its eyes and distract it. Oh, man, what a warrior. Yeah, super cool. <laughs> <laughs> so we already kind of touched on their behavior just a little bit, but I want to kind of get into their behavior. Um, our next category for rating is ingenuity. Mm -hmm. Like I said, behavioral adaptation. So these are like ways that they're solving problems that they're encountering on a daily basis or like things that they're doing with their body to 
make it through the day, basically. Sure. Um, so what do you give Cheetos for ingenuity? I would give it a higher score. I'd say eight because they have to make so many adaptations to be able to survive because they actually are in many cases kind of like at first glance at a disadvantage. So like I said, they're diurnal, which is really helpful because that keeps them kind of away from the most active period of other carnivores. And they have a very flexible social structure where the females are often solitary and the males will team up into these little groups, often of related males, such as brothers, and form coalitions and they actually can hunt together. So there's a lot of flexibility in the way that they get around things. They have a fairly high reproductive rate, which is really important because a lot of times cubs have a high mortality rate. So as cubs are lost, you know, they tend to start with a, a fairly high number of cubs. They're just really adaptive in some ways. Um, so when I was working in Kenya, there was a very small population of cheetahs outside a town called Salama. And I never saw one there. I will just say that. I never saw one there. But it's very, it's an unusual place. Unusual place, I would guess, for cheetahs because it's not a lot of open space. It's very overgrown. There's a high population of people there. So not really a place that you think cheetahs would be, but there was a small population of cheetahs there. And what we found is that they were actually turning more into ambush predators because they didn't have the amount of space they needed to be coursers. They were killing things like monkeys. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> right. So, and having like, you know, going after prey that, you wouldn't necessarily think they were going after and getting them from undercover, um, which I thought was really, really cool. So they're more adaptable than I think. You know, we always think of leopards as like the quintessential adaptable cat, but cheetahs are actually more adaptable than we gave them credit for, um, which was really cool because we actually found a piece of cheetah dung that had a monkey's paw in it, like a Whoa. monkey's head. So it's just like, I guess they're eating monkeys. And monkeys are not easy to catch. <laughs> <laughs> they must have got it on the ground somehow, but it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, so that's why I would give them a fairly high score. Yeah, I think in general, they have to kind of make up for a lot of their morphological limitations with behavioral changes. They are the nerds. They are the nerds. <laughs> <laughs> These are the nerds who have made up for their physical limitations with intellectual, like, yeah, they, they've made up for it with brains instead of brawn. They are, yeah. It's, it's funny because like, I've always kind of been kind of small and kind of wimpy, but I'm like, but I'm smart. And, like, the cheetah thing is just, like, the same thing. It's, like, you know, they're never going to be kind of like the Arnold Schwarzeneggers of the cat world, but they can figure things out and they can kind of work around whatever their limitations are. I guess I would have I would have expected them to maybe have more of a jock vibe because of how, like, athletic and, and fast sure. that they are. But as I'm learning that they have some more geeky tendencies, they're really <laughs> – that's really hammering at home for me. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so the kind of prey that they're chasing mm – -hmm is also very fast, right? Yeah. You hear about a lot of times when predator and prey have this sort of relationship where they're in like an arms race, mm -hmm. where like one gets faster, so the other one gets even faster, so the other one gets even faster. Is that happening with cheetahs? Yeah, um, so kind of. So there's a theory that the ancestors of cheetahs, and there's also theories that they originated in Asia, but there's also a theory that they originated in North America, actually. And that's the reason the pronghorn is that fast. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, might, it probably wasn't the cheetah as we know cheetahs today, but the ancestors of the cheetahs might have originated there, and then that's why you get the second fastest land mammal. So yeah, I definitely think, you know, like, as predators evolve different traits, their prey have to evolve certain traits to keep up. And impala are pretty quick, so it's really amazing to watch them hunt, because I think there's a there's a misconception, maybe because of not, like nature documentaries often show, you know, success in the hunt, but cheetahs only have about like a 25% success rate. So that's, you know, on a bad day, like one fourth of their attempts fail. And 
the impala gets away, which is not great for the cheetah, but it shows kind of how closely matched these animals are to each other and that it's actually a huge risk for, for predators. Because the other thing to think about is that, you know, when predators hunt, if they get kicked in the eye or something or they get injured, they can't hunt anymore and they'll die. So every single hunt is like a huge risk. Um, and that's why they really have to be in the top of their game. So, so you mentioned that they're coursers. Mm. Do they have any sort of like preference for the type of prey that they'll go for? Like if something is like too big, they'll be like, no, I can't take that down. Or like, what is the thought process behind like what prey they'll go after? Yeah, um, they definitely have some limitations. When you have cheetahs hunting the coalition, they can take down slightly larger prey. So when you have the, for example, they're usually brothers in that group, like th- two or three individuals. Um, they can take down larger prey, but usually, you know, you're looking at prey kind of like in like mid-sized range, like an Impala or something like that, or like a Thompson's gazelle. Like they really like Tommy gazelles um, in East Africa specifically, but they'll also, you know, they're not particularly picky. They'll go after things like hair, smaller things, whatever they can kind of get a hold of. But yeah, the typical prey that you think of, like when you think of the quintessential cheetah in a perfect environment with a lot of space to run is like, for example, something like the Thompson gazelle. So, you know, Mid-sized, small antelope. Um, in southern Africa, they'll go after things like springbok, um, which is another mid-sized antelope. Definitely, once you get much larger than that, it's hard for them to take them down. You're not going to see cheetahs go after something like a like an African buffalo or something like that that's like way above their, above their grade. So they're kind of like a mid-level predator. Sure, sure, sure. Have you ever been watching like a movie or a TV show or something and seen a cheetah depicted in a way that made you just like want to tear your hair out and scream like, that's not true. That's not how they do. <laughs> like, have you ever had that sort of moment with a depiction of cheetahs? I mean, I've seen some pretty wacky ones, like the, the guy in the cheetahs commercials. <laughs> like, that's Chester definitely, cheetah. Chester the cheetahs definitely not accurate to science. Um... <laughs> You mean they don't have, like, weirdly large noses for some reason? They don't, and they don't wear sunglasses, because they already have the little tear marks. They don't need them. So the sunglasses would be redundant. They're redundant sunglasses. Yeah. I hope Frito-Lay is taking notes. <laughs> but they look cool, right? Um, yeah. So in terms of that, I mean, there's a lot of cheetahs are often depicted in ways that are kind of, like, cool or fast. But, yeah, I think I can't really express how how timid they actually are. So it's actually a really interesting thing that cheetahs are kind of synonymous with, you know, like, like a cool, sexy car or something. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) but they're really, you know, they're quite, they're quite shy. So I think that's kind of cool. And there's a lot of problematic depictions. There was this movie called Duma, which is, is Swahili for actually cheetah, from the 90s that I watched growing up. And that was just full of, like, problematic things in terms of, like, they... This group of tourists like adopted this cat and it became like a pet. And I'm just like, this is a horrible message to give to people because pet trade is like a huge actual impact on cheetah populations. What happens is people will go and they'll smuggle cheetahs up through the Horn of Africa and basically sell the cats to people when they're cubs to people as a status symbol and like the um, in the Emirates mostly. So it's a huge problem and there's a huge mortality rate for the for the cats. And obviously it's a really bad thing for the animal. Um, And cheetahs, unfortunately, because they're more easily tamed than many other cats, they often end up in these situations. For example, you know, in ancient Persia, they were used to hunt gazelle for royalty and things like that. So they have a long history of being taken from the wild, unfortunately, and being not domesticated, but being like tamed or kept in that way. And it's a really bad thing for the animal. They're not pets. Um, They're not necessarily safe to have around and it's obviously horrible for their own health and for their own well-being especially with cubs because you can't rehabilitate those cubs so for example at cheetah conservation fund 
um, they were able to rescue some of the cubs, um, literally get the cats out of captivity before they ended up in the trade. But those cats could never go back in the wild because they have to be taught from a very young age how to hunt. So they're essentially going to be in captivity for the rest of their life, which is, it's not a good thing. It's a sad thing. And we always used to say, like, I used to love seeing, you know, like the captive ambassador cheetahs walking to work. But we always used to say, you know, like, if we're doing our job and everything's going well, we wouldn't have these cats at all. They would all be able to be released into the wild. So you mentioned that the cheetahs are, to their detriment, easily tamed. But from the perspective of someone who's working with them, maybe like in a zoo, or like you said, working with doing conservation work with them as an ambassador, how trainable are they? Yeah, that's a good question. I've worked with them more in like a a wild context. I've never really worked with them in captivity. I've seen them in captivity because they were around where I was doing my job, but I was out in the field mostly. Um, So I can't really speak to that. I know that they can be conditioned to... So, for example, the captive cheetahs that couldn't be released were taught how to do basically runs. So they would actually um, have, it was almost like a little zip line across the ground that would like drag a lure. And the cats were trained to be able to chase that. And that was really important for the cats because it was the only way that they could get enough exercise and to be able to exercise those um, natural behaviors. So they could be trained to do things like that. But they're not, you know, they're definitely not harmless. Um, I'm a short person and they used to stalk me behind the fence and I had to like basically work with them enough for the, to the point where they could figure out that I'm not actually a goat because <laughs> they probably <laughs> thought I was a goat or something. They're still wild animals and that's something that you have to be aware of you know, as you work with them. You said earlier that your work was in conflict between human and wildlife. What kind of conflict is there between cheetahs and humans like where they live? A lot. So what happens is that there's more and more people and a lot of the time people are actually doing you know, bushmeat hunting in the area. So they're reducing predators prey base and that can all kind of exacerbate an existing problem where predators will actually take farmers' livestock. So a cheetah will go, like they'll see maybe someone's goats are out by themselves because the herder's not there, or maybe they're just left out to graze by themselves. They'll take like a kid, a kid goat, not like a kid, or, you know, a sheep or something, and then they'll eat that. Because, you know, compared to their wild prey, it's a lot easier for them to catch livestock. I mean, it's right there. It's right there. And they also, if it's, you know, they don't have their prey base there, it just makes it worse because then they don't have anything to eat. So what happens with that, unfortunately, is that farmers often will, you know, shoot the predators, which is understandable because they're losing their livelihood. They're not going to be able to send their kids to school. Like, it's a huge issue. And it's also a cultural problem because in many places, you know, the more livestock you have, like, the higher standard of the community. So it's like a cultural affront as well as an economic affront in some places. So that's a big conflict is that, you know, trying to prevent livestock loss, but also trying to work with farmers to increase tolerance to predators Um, which is really difficult because they have a good reason to not like carnivores. So it's a lot of anthropological work in many cases, just kind of understandings where perceptions of different carnivores come into play, because a lot of the time you would think that the animals that take the most livestock are the ones that farmers don't like the most. But that's not necessarily true. Sometimes it's because they hunt in a certain way. Or, for example, um, African wild dogs are pretty much hated by a lot of farmers. And it's not because they take the most amount of animals, but they tend to go after the really expensive ones like cattle. They have huge ranges, so they basically come in um, like a hurricane, knock out a bunch of animals, and then leave. And for a farmer, that's a lot more dramatic than something like a jackal that might take a sheep here or take a sheep there. And maybe over the time, they lose more animals to jackals, but it's less dramatic and it sticks in the mind less. Um, And the hunting style is 
I mean, African wild dogs have, for, from a human perspective, kind of an unfortunate tendency to tear animals apart while they're still alive. Farmers don't like that. So that makes sense. It's a little distasteful. A <laughs> little distasteful from a human perspective, of course. So there's a lot of other factors about why farmers might feel differently about different predators. Um, and with cheetahs, one thing that we found is that cheetahs and leopards get mixed up a lot um, in terms of people will be like, I saw a leopard or I saw a cheetah or there's been like a leopard skulking around and it's actually a cheetah. And it's actually really important to be able to know the difference because there's different mitigation methods you can use for cheetahs than for leopards. So leopards might be able to like jump into an like an animal enclosure because they can climb, right? But a cheetah wouldn't. So cheetahs usually are taking things that are kind of left out in the bush and it's just available and then they'll take something from the bush. That's kind of like the complexity of all of that. And there's also the very technical aspect of trying to figure out different ways to, you know, scare predators non-lethally away from livestock. So that could be like flashing light systems, alarm systems, GPS, kind of like geofences that warn farmers when predators are getting close so they can move their animals. There's a lot of different technical solutions as well as very low-tech solutions. So working with a community and trying to figure out for Cheetah Conservation Fund, what was really effective was actually the use of livestock guarding dogs. Having dogs that were, you know, trained from, you know, puppyhood to be able to go out with animals when they're out in the field. And the dog wouldn't even have to like, you know, attack a cheetah. Like cheetahs are, like I said, they're quite skittish. So that's just having the dog there is a deterrent. So the cheetah stays safe and the livestock stays safe. So there's a lot of different ways that you can work to prevent these things. But one thing I want to stress is that just because it works in a certain area um, doesn't mean you can take the same things and, and move it to a different area. Like it's very context dependent. But I always say that I, I like to call myself like an interspecies diplomat. <laughs> <laughs> the ambassador. <laughs> kind of, yeah, because it's basically it's like you're playing chess. Predators are really smart. The average jackal is a lot smarter than I am. So as you're doing all these different deterrent work or trying to figure out different ways to try to prevent cheetahs from or other predators from going after livestock, they're learning. One of my favorite things I ever saw, there was a little video of um, a hyena and it was circling around what's called a boma. So like a livestock enclosure made of thorns. So the entire thing was like made of these thorn branches. There's a tiny little piece of branch that didn't have any thorns on it that, you know, the herders would go and like use it to lift it up to go into the enclosure. So the video is of this hyena going around the enclosure, like systematically going around it, finding that one tiny little piece of branch, lifting it with its mouth and going underneath it. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So they're clever. Very impressive. Yeah. I'm very impressed. <laughs> but please don't do that. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely it's definitely hard. So, yeah, there's no silver bullet for these problems. It's just something that kind of has to continuously be worked on. And there has to always be kind of innovation, but not just from outside researchers through working with people on the ground as well and making sure that it's tied into what the community needs. I know this is the whole thing that you're doing. So I really hope that like there's a way to find that sweet spot balance between harmony with the cheetahs and also a thriving agricultural community, like having everything. I know that's a silly way of saying like, I hope everybody gets what they want. <laughs> I did want to ask, have you ever touched a cheetah? Um, yes, but it was in a very specific scenario. People should not go around petting them. It was a cheetah that had come in um, from basically being on a farm um, and it went into Cheetah Conservation Fund has like an in-house vet clinic um, and all the cats kind of go into that and they're evaluated. Um, so it was, you know, under anesthesia, it wasn't awake and I got to listen to its heartbeat, which was really amazing and made me cry. Um, oh, what did it 
Was it really fast? No, because he was asleep. No. But like oh. the the vet, you know, put the stethoscope on my ears and let me listen to the cat's heartbeat, and it was really really emotional. Um, especially since you know I've wanted to do this since I was like three years old, and I've been obsessed with these animals since I was three years old. And um, you're listening to the heartbeat of the animal that you've wanted to save your whole life. It was just oh, I'm getting secondhand emotional for you. <laughs> I like cried in the clinic. <laughs> oh, I would too. It's amazing. That's that's a powerful moment. That was really cool of that vet to let you do that. Yeah, but just stressing. Yeah, they're not. They're definitely not pets and should not be not be touched unless you're a professional. <laughs> Don't touch. I've been close enough to touch a cheetah. Um, I was at the Jacksonville Zoo. Oh, cool. The fur looked really like thick and coarse, more so than I would expect from an animal that lives in a, a hot, dry environment. Is that what the fur is like? Is it like thick and coarse? That's what it looked like, at least. I mean, I'm trying to remember what... what It, it didn't seem very thick to me. It's very um, kind of almost wiry feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the right word. <laughs> yeah. It's um, it's definitely kind of a very, like, kind of rough coat. It's not soft, No, right? it's not. Yeah, it's really interesting. But actually, cool thing about their fur is that, you know, like the baby cheetahs have completely different, they look very different from the adults. So they have something called a mantle, which basically is on their back. Um, and it goes from their head all the way to their back like a mohawk, like they're, like they're little rockers. So the theory behind that, and they lose that as they get older, the theory behind the reason that they have that is it makes them look like honey badgers. <gasps> really? And honey badgers, <laughs> as we know, don't care and are very, very ferocious. <laughs> So the idea is that because, you know, baby cheetahs are so vulnerable, by making them look like something that's very, like, fierce, the theory is that it would help, you know, prevent predation. Oh, some mimicry going on. I didn't think that mimicry was going to be a thing with cheetahs. That's really cool. That's smart of them. They have, like, these really cool, like, little gray mohawks. I love them. Nerd but punk. Yes, punk nerd. <laughs> they, they go through a punk phase and they go full nerd. <laughs> Listen, we've all been there. Okay, you get a little rebellious in your early years, yeah. and then you settle into your nerd lifestyle. Yeah, that's basically what cheetahs do too. That's like their that's like their um, adolescent punk phase. I love them. Since we're talking about how cute and adorable and punk they are, let's talk about aesthetics. Okay, sure. Uh, that's our final rating. What do you give them out of ten for aesthetics? Oh man, I gotta give them a ten. <laughs> they are incredibly beautiful. They're incredibly graceful. And they're so unique. And that's another thing that I love about them is that they don't look like other cats. They have almost like a kind of canine face. It's very short. And, you know, like these little round heads, <laughs> these little round ears. And they're very lanky. I don't know. I just, I think they're gorgeous. I think they have adapted beautifully to their environment. Yeah, it's got to be a 10. And their eyes are, you know, amber. I mean, how could you not love that, right? Do they have the circle pupils or the slit pupils? They have circle pupils. Okay. All large cats actually have circle pupils. So they have like these really beautiful kind of amber, amber orangey eyes. Like they're, they're gorgeous in every single life stage. And when they're teenagers, like when they're adolescents and they're kind of growing out of the mantle and they kind of look a little scraggly, like, I don't know, like every single stage is just amazing. Um, <laughs> they never get less cute. No. I mean, honestly, when I used to have a bad day, I used to like sit, you know, fairly near where some of the cheetah exhibits were at work, and I would just, like, listen to them purr, and they would, like, purr to themselves, or they would purr as they were grooming each other, because uh, we had a couple siblings that couldn't be released, and they'd be grooming each other, and they would, like, purr as they groom. And the males are very, very, very uh, gregarious with each other, especially if they're from the same coalition. So you would see, like, the males would actually lie, like, almost on top of each other, like, like, a, like a bro heap. Like, they would just kind of all be, like, snuggled up together, and they would be grooming each other and be very affectionate. And it was cute watching them, like, compared to some of the females, because some of the females, you know, 
are more independent and like the females would be in the same enclosure but they wouldn't be interacting as much but the males would just be like over like having like a bro love fest it was like adorable (laughs) icons of positive masculinity yeah they're pretty great (laughs) (laughs) they're like this yellow color right they're they're kind of like a like halfway between like orange and yellow right is this for a camouflage reason um yeah i mean i would think so they look different from leopards in the terms of like people often ask me you know how can you tell the difference between like a leopard and a cheetah versus a jaguar because they don't have spots so i always say like you know a jaguar they basically are like the pit bulls of the cat world like they're really muscular like really buff with a really big chest and they have uh rosettes and the rosettes are different than the leopards where the jaguar rosettes will actually have like little dots inside them leopards have rosettes so they have that kind of like pretty kind of patterning and cheetahs actually just have spots so they just have like the single spots on the um, kind of pale yellow background. And I would think, you know, it's related to things like camouflage. I mean, obviously they live in savannas and the environments like that where there's a lot of kind of tall grasses and things like that. So that could be helpful for that. But yeah, basically that's how you tell the difference between them when you see them in terms of just the coat patterning. Did you ever have a hard time finding them? Yeah, they're not easy to see. They're not animals that, unless you're in some place like the Maasai Mara where there's a lot of them and they're very you know familiar with cars coming through. I've only seen two cheetahs in the wild the entire time I've worked there. I've been, you know, working on human wildlife conflict issues in Africa for about five years now, and I've seen like two from far away. So they're they're not the easiest to spot. <laughs> spot. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's just because they're just not interested in people and cars are loud and they just don't want anything to do with that. They they can be pretty cryptic actually. The best chance you have of seeing a cheetah is um, kind of in the early morning period before it gets really hot and it's still a little like dim out. Then you might get a good, you know, if you're lucky. Um, there's also cheetahs will mark on things called play trees. So they'll go to specific trees and, you know, mark or like spray and their scent. So sometimes hanging out near one is a good way to see one, but there's no guarantees. But a lot of the, like, for example, camera chat pictures we got of cheetahs, we'd actually put at play trees. So, like, these are areas that we know cheetahs go, and it's basically like a cheetah messaging board. They go (laughs) and they're like, what has all the other cheetahs in the area been doing? The cheetah forums. And then they do, like, reply to all. (laughs) Yeah, so... So, you know, putting up camera traps at those um, at those trees were actually a good way to kind of get a sense of, of what cats are out there. And when you actually recognize them by their spot patterns. So if you work with, um, in a population long enough, you can actually tell this individual from that individual based on the patterns of their spots because no patterns are exactly the same. Aww. Like, did you get to a point where you were able to, like, look at a picture and be like, oh, yep, that's, I don't know. Gerald, I don't know what you named your cheetahs, <laughs> but like you look at them, you're like, I know exactly which cheetah that is. We gave them uh, like female and male codes and then like number codes. Okay. We, we would only name the uh, cheetahs that were captive that we weren't going to release. Um, but yeah, you could be like, yeah, that's like M115 or whatever. You actually, you know, there's like little guidebooks of like, this one has a cluster of spot up near his shoulder in like this certain way. And so that's how you recognize on the left side. So it's kind of similar to how um, I think tiger biologists identify tigers, you know, by their stripe patterns. They all have unique little quirks like that. Before we get wrapped up for the day, I wanted to give you a chance to kind of just let us know what sort of projects you're working on, like what you want people to know about what you've been up to, where they can find you on social media, stuff like that. 
Sure. Um, so the pandemic, like many people, completely derailed my plans. So I had been awarded a Fulbright to Botswana uh, last year. And it's basically kind of been a holding pattern at this state of like when I'll be able to go. But the idea is to do a project um, actually using lion feces, so lion poop, as a deterrent to try to change the behavior of African wild dogs um, on commercial farms in Botswana. So it sounds really kooky and weird. The, the theory behind it is that African wild dogs stay away from lions because lions are a major cause of mortality for African wild dogs. So it's trying to use those natural relationships between carnivores and manipulate them by making African wild dogs think that there's higher population of lions than there actually is, and then seeing if that affects if they stay away from farms. That's really cool. (laughs) So that's the plan. The idea is to collaborate with two organizations in Botswana, Botswana Predator Conservation and Cheetah Conservation Botswana, which actually I got to talk a little bit to Rebecca Klein because of my um, ties to Cheetah Conservation Fund. They're not really affiliates, but, you know, they talk together and they, you know, share information. So, yeah, so the idea is that as soon as it's safe to go, I'm going to do that. Um, in the meantime, I'm trying to do a lot more SciComm. I am working on a small NGO outside of DC, basically trying to work with partners all over the world to increase their scientific capacity. So tying people to different trainings and things like that. Um, that's another thing I'm really passionate about. Um, I'm also applying to grad school. So hopefully by next fall, I'll be in a PhD program. Um, that's the next step for me. I was lucky enough to get recognized by Forbes um, in December um, as one of 30 under 30. So I do have a profile there. So if you want kind of like a succinct what I do, it's there. That's incredibly cool, by the way. <laughs> Big congratulations. That's really neat. It was, I was super shocked and didn't expect it, but I'm very grateful. Um, <laughs> yeah, so you can definitely check me out there. My social media, I'm most active on Twitter, where I post geeky things and science. At GS. so my last name and then G. Um, as in, I don't know, I can only think of video game references. G as in Godfall. (laughs) (laughs) And um, S as in Skyrim. You nailed it. (laughs) You know exactly who you're talking to. (laughs) Right. So um, so you can follow me there. And as I kind of get more updates, um, I definitely will be posting there. I'm also an active member of Black Mammologists, which is an awareness campaign. And it basically celebrates the contributions of Black mammologists, of people who study mammals, both historically and currently. And I'm working on some of their uh, campaign stuff to try to... Oh, yes! Excellent! (laughs) You're holding up the little cup. Nobody can see it, but I'm holding up my cup that has the Black Mammologist Week um, sticker on it, which is like one of the coolest designs I've ever seen. (laughs) It's pretty cool. Yeah, we're very lucky. So yeah, so basically, I am helping them out with some of their fundraising campaign. We're trying, we're trying to raise funds for a BIPOC scholarship in collaboration with American Mammalogist Society. Um, so that's been really cool. And I'm also co-writing a bunch of papers. I have a paper that was just accepted, a first author paper on the environmental video game I co-created with a friend, um, which teaches different human wildlife conflict mitigation methods. That's coming out soon, and I'll be writing about that there. And I'm also co-writing a paper with some other people on um, basically protected area management in Africa and how that ties into social justice. That's awesome. You're the coolest. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for taking all this time to talk with us today. I've learned a lot about cheetahs and it's been really cool. I like I I said this off mic earlier, but I've been following you for a while on Twitter and and seeing some of your work and it's just it's it's very cool. And so (laughs) I I feel lucky to have had the chance to, to chat with you today. 
Yeah, likewise. I've been I've been keeping definitely a pulse on the podcast, and it's, <laughs> it's a really fun idea, and it's been great to finally meet you. So, <laughs> thanks so much. Well, we will talk with you later. Sounds good. Thanks. Bye. Bye.